it's actually a pretty cool version of Tomorrow Never Knows. We were trying to play a different version, but that's kind of like a little bit of a psychedelic version. Welcome to a special edition of the Indie Cafe on the Red Velvet Media Network. And today we have um, some really great guests in the studio, along with my co-host Spencer Drake. Today we're going to be talking about soundbreaking, stories from the cutting edge of recorded music, uh, which was a special and is still airing. Um, and uh, I have Jeff with us as well as uh, some special guests and my co-host. And uh, I'm going to bring Jeff into the studio. And Before I start that off, I'd like to say today is uh, the weekend before Mother's Day. I want to wish everyone out there a uh, happy Mother's Day. And to all the men that are acting and taking the place of a mother, uh, happy Mother's Day to you guys too. And so with that, let's bring everyone into the studio. And I want to let everyone know the show will be available um, during or after, if you'd like to listen to it on iTunes. And it will be available also um, available on Red Velvet Media, Blog Talk Radio afterwards as a podcast. You can listen live. There is a chat room open. And with that, uh, Jeff, are you there? I am here. Oh, there you are? I thought I yes. lost you. That was a pretty trippy version of Tomorrow Never Knows, huh? Really trippy. Quite different from the original, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. And, you know, um, I know that you chose that song to open up with, and then I have Spencer and I have Chuck with us also. Uh, so, you know, uh, Jeff, you know, why don't you start off by telling everyone a little bit about Soundbreaking, which a lot of people are just like, I think, amazing, uh, just special. And uh, let's talk a little bit about that and how that was for you working with all the different people because I've seen some of the trailers and some of the different episodes, and they're just so cool. Uh, Sure. Well, my name is Jeff Dupre. I'm a documentary filmmaker based in New York City, and uh, I had this fantasy project um, come my way, and I was very blessed to be connected to uh, Sir George Martin, the legendary Beatles producer, uh, who always dreamed of of creating a, a big sort of landmark series on the art of music recording. Um, and mm-hmm. the sort of role of technology in transforming the sound of popular music over the last 50 years. Um, and um, so I was tasked, uh, my, and my company, we were tasked with, uh, with creating the series. And um, it was a very uh, long and arduous project, but of course it was incredibly uh, rewarding. And uh, Chuck Granada, who is here with us, is a key interview, and he's he's kind of the He's the kind of guy you definitely want in your show because he can really do heavy lifting yeah. and explain very difficult uh, <laughs> ideas because we, we were talking about technology. And so, you know, there's one episode where we talk about what happens when you go from two-track recording to four-track recording and on, and Chuck was able to sort of break that down for us. So we were very, very fortunate to have him. Um, but basically, um, we, we wanted to look at the history of recorded music, which is obviously a totally vast story. So we, we, what we did was we sort of broke it down thematically, and uh, each episode has a different theme. And within each episode, we follow a rough sort of chronological arc and look at a number of different individual stories that sort of um, explicate that theme. Yeah, it's amazing. 
Yeah. I know you've, so, uh, um, but you know, George, George Martin, uh, he, uh, the, was really at the center of the story. He was actually, mm-hmm. um, but, but this was in no way a vanity piece for him. I mean, in fact, the, the one word of advice he gave to me was like to, to make the series as little about him as we wanted to, <laughs> which I was very mm-hmm. impressed by that. But um, regardless of his modesty, um, he's a figure that's really at the center of the story because uh, in the early to mid-60s, he, and the, along with the Beatles, started doing some extraordinary things in the recording studio, which have continued to reverberate throughout the history of popular music. So a lot of the things mm-hmm. that they did in the studio, other artists looked back on that and said, I mean, the Beatles kind of created a paradigm where each new album was going to be something totally new and something totally innovative. And that sort of paradigm was something that all artists who came after them looked to. And, uh, you know, artists today, even today, like they want to come out with a new album that's a new sound and it's something new and it's different mm. because we as listeners respond to that. We respond mm-hmm. to that new sound. It's like it, it sparked our curiosity and it has a new sort of effect on us. So uh, George and the Beatles, they were really the ones who started that in many ways within the oh, realm absolutely. of popular music. Oh, yeah. oh, Holly, I wanted oh, yeah. to come in for a second. Um, <clears throat> Chuck Renata, um, I have to uh, add a little tidbit here. Chuck wrote the forward to my first 45 book. It was the first visual history book that came out in 2002. And Chuck had wrote the forward, actually, to the book. He has a phenomenal background on the history of music. And he gave me this uh, 1950s collection until this day. I can't believe it. Gorgeous, main condition covers that were in the book. And, by the way, the book is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame collection. But when I saw the, the New York Doc Festival, when I saw Sound Breaking, I saw Chuck in the movie. I said, oh, my God. I said, this is perfect. And, Chuck, why don't you, why don't you talk a little about your, your interview or connection? Sure. Well, yeah, how did you and Jeff meet? Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is yeah. such a great opportunity, and I appreciate your asking me to join you today because – Oh, yeah. I can not say yeah, enough great definitely. things about Jeff and what he and his team did. I mm-hmm. knew that he was doing something important when he called me and asked me if I would do an interview for the film, but it wasn't until I went to the screening and saw, what was it, Jeff, two or three of the episodes? Mm-hmm. That I, yep. I really, really was blown away by what he accomplished, which believe it or not, I mean, it sounds like it's simple. Okay. Take the history of multi-track recording as, as your, your, your foundation, and then talk about recording basically from the beginning and how it affected not just the sound, but you know, the artist and the creative process. And it made engineers and producers, you know, another tool in the studio, but Jeff was able to distill and condense and present this in such a beautiful and concise way. You know what is amazing to me? I never felt as if there were anything missing. It's like Mm. everything you could want. Every genre was covered, every aspect of the Mm -hmm, story. And, you know, it was incredible. And he got pretty much every major figure in. I mean, you know, big, big people in the industry on both sides of the glass. So, Jeff, mm-hmm. you know, you have my undying respect. I just love this program, <laughs> and I, I'm so honored to be a part of it. And, uh-huh. you know, as, in terms of my contribution, I've always felt that not enough 
uh, uh, interplay is is examined when you talk about sound recording because you know you have the mm-hmm. artist and you have what they do and they create a certain sound. But if it weren't for truly talented technicians and a producer who could really shepherd all that energy and channel it and, and keep things on track, you, know, you wouldn't have the records that we have that we're celebrating in sound breaking. So to oh, me, yeah, it was always an yeah. important thing to write about. And when I wrote my first book on Frank Sinatra, that's what I did. I tried to interweave the, the art and the science of the whole process of writing mm-hmm. and creating music and then capturing it and preserving it for posterity. And that's really what Jeff brought together visually. I had tried to do that within the pages of a very specific book about one artist. And then my uh, reputation for having the technical background and the musical background and knowledge kind of grew. And I was able to write a book with Phil Ramone, the great record producer. So that was a nice validation that the, the track I was on was the right one. Hey, Chuck, and I want to oh, bring up fantastic. something. I have your, if everybody wants to know, there's a great Smithsonian CD on Frank Sinatra that Chuck is involved with, right, Chuck? And it's wonderful. I, I just can't tell you uh, what it means to me, uh, designing for great musicians of music and the sound. Uh, of that oh, recording. I, I just want to give a plug to that, to Chuck. Thanks. Yeah, well, a lot oh, of my great. work is devoted to restoration and preservation, mm-hmm. and I do a lot of work with Frank Sinatra's music, and I produce all the reissues at Sony Music. Yeah, and cool. uh, the Smithsonian collection was the fifth disc of a four-CD box set that we mm-hmm. did at Sony for Frank's 100th birthday. And the Smithsonian oh. asked mm-hmm. if we would do a special CD for them, and we used um, all material that was not on the box, so it was like an extra disc in the box set. So it was a lot of fun to do. But thank you for that, Spencer. Yes, sure. Oh, nice. Well, Jeff, Jeff I want to ask you really quickly, um, and, and, and Chuck, that's so cool. I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about your book and your project. Um, that's so great that you got involved in this with Jeff. Uh, Jeff, you know, when you were doing these different you know, artists and, and talking about the recording and stuff. Are there any moments that stand out to you more than others? <clears throat> excuse me, my voice is going. Than others during the time that you were creating this uh, series? Um, well, you know, because um, uh, of George, the, the, the yeah. uh, George Martin is really the George Martin's really the presiding spirit of this project, mm-hmm. and he it was his dream to do it. And um, so I really feel like the Beatles being at the center of the story. We, oh, yeah. we knew that we had to get to get that story right because it was really at the middle of everything. So actually, the reason why I suggested you play Tomorrow Never Knows at the top was that that song yeah. and the recording of that song really is like a, a big turning point in the history of recorded music. And so we um, were very uh, lucky to be able to go over to Abbey Road Studios in London, and George's son, Giles, uh, brought out the, um, all the multi-tracks, all the, stem, the stems of mm, that song and wow. played each one of them for us because there was mm-hmm. like oh. – and they did all these incredibly interesting things uh, to make the song sound the way it does. They, you know, mm. they created all kinds of sound effects, and, and uh, they had used tape loops – to make mm-hmm. all kinds of really interesting sounds. Uh, and then, you know, they laid down this sort of drum track, this uh, rhythm track, and then they sort of added everything on top of it, which is actually 
kind of the way music is made today. Most music today is made that way. So it was really kind of a portal into the future, the way they made that song. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so in that episode, episode two on multi-track recording, everything is kind of leading up to that moment. And then everything that comes after it is sort of examining how, you know, it's impact. So um, that one song, you know, it was, it was at a moment in the Beatles uh, trajectory where they were, had really become um, to understand what was possible in the studio. And they just kept asking for more, like, what can we do now? Let's keep pushing the envelope. George, let us Mm -hmm. do something, you know, new. And then, you know, it was also around the same time that I, I believe that John Lennon was experimenting with LSD and he was, you know, he was reading the Tibetan book of the dead and, you know, he started to want to make songs that, recapitulated what he was hearing in his mind when he was going on these trips mm-hmm. and the result right. is, is oh, wow. whatever it is. I, def- I definitely think there's a whole series to be made just on the relationship of drugs and popular music. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, I get that. Which would be very no. interesting. Um, yeah. But um, uh, so, yeah, so that, you know, that song, you know, we see, the Beatles, uh, their early recordings. I saw her standing there and please, please be They're very simple like a garage band just like playing live and they're pressing record Mm -hmm. as this band plays live. And then, you know, as the technology evolves, they're able to start manipulating what you're hearing and creating these sounds that you actually can't play live. So the studio Mm -hmm. itself becomes uh, an instrument. So, and that's sort of the, the, you know, the whole rest of the series is looking like, is looking at like what happens when the studio is an instrument. And it's, it's, it's not about, just playing the guitar and playing drums. It's, it's, it's just manipulating and, and, and innovating. So, um, so anyway, yeah, that, that was like definitely a big moment and uh, it's super exciting in that show to see how the Beatles and the Beach Boys were influencing each other. This sort of one up and ship, this transatlantic yeah. kind of competition between the two. Mm-hmm. And of course, Chuck, Chuck is an expert on that and he kind of narrates the entire sequence. So, um, That's so cool, we were, yeah. Well, you uh, know, it was a, a fascinating and, as Jeff points out, a pivotal moment in both the performing arts and the recording arts because no one had really experimented with these effects the way that uh, George Martin and the Beatles and then Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys were doing yeah. between 1965 mm-hmm. and 1968. I mean, that was really the moment where, uh, you know, crazy things started to happen and, and things that would never, ever have been imagined could be done were mm-hmm. being done, no, no matter how outlandish it was, you know. How interesting. Uh, I remember, wow. Yeah, I remember stories uh, from one of the engineers who worked with Frank Zappa who said that um, around the same time, 67, 68, Zappa mm-hmm. would come to the studio he would record music, and then he would sit in the control room very uh, patiently and very tediously and cut apart the tape. And then he would uh, take, oh. just randomly oh, take no. pieces of tape and reverse them, <laughs> and, and, and then oh, he would no. just see what this hodgepodge of tape that was just completely jumbled and re-edited wow. sounded like. Unbelievable. You know, and and no one would have ever thought to do that even two or three years earlier. That would have been, you know, anathema to what the studio environment was like for an engineer or a producer. So these guys really brought it to this 
remarkable cutting edge. And then, of course, you know, in the ensuing decades, it just became even more insane. They went from four-track recording and, uh, you know, using uh, analog tape to a virtually unlimited number of tracks in digital. Mm. So, you know, now the sky's the mm. limit. You can virtually do anything oh, in yeah. the studio. And actually, the studio and is now your laptop, so it's a whole different ballgame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that, Chuck, that uh, today a lot of musicians, uh, uh, I work with Joseph Arthur, Holly, and I had him on our show. I mean, he does stuff out of his house, you know, his his records. A lot of his records are literally out of his house, you know. Right. Yeah, most artists today will record in their own home studios and, yeah. you know, the garage band that it. used to literally be mm-hmm. in a garage with a little tape recorder set up and some mics and stands. That garage is now, you know, kids' bedrooms and they have their MacBook right. Pro mm-hmm. and a couple plug-in mics. And, you yeah. know, so it, it's the same concept, but just in a whole different way of using the technology. And, and you know, of course, the advances have an digital recording have enabled um, the artist, the producer, the engineer to manipulate the sound in, in a completely different way and in a much mm-hmm. more um, simple way than ever before. You know, the effects oh. that Frank Zappa created and the Beatles created and the Beach Boys created would be done by hand and they had to be um, copied from tape to tape. And, you know, there was a limit to what you could do now. It's the click of a button or a plug-in, and you can get an effect instantly. You don't have to even work for it. So it's very different. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. But it, yeah. It's, it's so interesting, and, you know, uh, and we look at this in the show, is, um, yeah. as the technology evolved, there's, like, endless possibilities for how you can make music. And in a way, when you have too many choices, it can be crippling, um, and it can actually mm-hmm. um, be stifling. I so get we, that. we actually look at it at a story um, of Fleetwood Mac um, when they were coming off, you know, creating Rumors, one of the greatest albums of all time. Their next album, Tusk, they started, they wanted to, like, play in the studio, and they wanted to use every trick that they could. And and Lindsey Buckingham, I think, was very consciously thinking about the Beatles uh, and and some of the other great bands, of the experimental bands, as he set out to sort of create a new sound for Fleetwood Mac. But, of course, what wound up happening uh, was it took them over, you know, it took them forever to finish the album because they're like, well, we could make that sound. We could also make this sound. And, you know, so <laughs> it's like, it, it, you know, you, you kind of have to set parameters for yourself as an artist um, in terms of, like, the, your palette. You can't just, like, use everything endlessly. And I, I feel like what's happened now, a lot of artists really try to set limits for themselves so they don't, they, they don't fall prey to, you know, having all those choices. Um, uh, I know that Radiohead, they, they sometimes they sort of set out rules when they go to make an album. It's like, we're going to do this, but we're not going to do that, or we're going to use these instruments, but not those. And it actually helps you to focus. Mm-hmm. And just to pick up on something Chuck said, you know, um, um, you know, it's just, it's just super important to, to be able to do that and to, and to, to not get lost in, in all the choices you have. I think and, you I, know, oh, yeah. that's where I saw a documentary on musicians, um, and, and they, they had such varied opinions about recording 
So, as you well know, some like the simplicity without the overdubbing and all this technical effect, and others get into that, right? There's a very uh, diverse thing on this, right, guys? For sure. Yeah, and I mean, in, in some of the, that's some where of the stories, a good producer comes in, you know? The, yes, a good producer exactly. can shepherd all this yeah. mayhem, and, uh, you know, they can kind of bring that logic and sense back to the group. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and some of the stories in Soundbreaking are about artists wanting to return to the simplest possible right. recording Simple, yeah. of their yeah. performance. Exactly you know, like right, there's, a, yeah. there's a story about Johnny Cash, you know, towards the end of his career, you know, recording uh, a series of albums with Rick Rubin where it was just like, let's get back to the basic, basic, basic essential Johnny mm-hmm. Cash. And, and it was really, I mean, they're all incredible uh, albums, but and also I think that Cat um, uh, Stevens um, uh, talked about sort of feeling like he was being overproduced in the in the mid late '60s and just wanting to like just have have it be a guitar in him and well look what happened. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, you know what's interesting? No, the Rick right. Rubin, uh, Jeff, the, the Rick Rubin story was very interesting to me because, uh, as you well know, and a lot of people didn't know, uh, Johnny Cash was going through a very down period of his life, right? And then, and, and like, literally Rick Rubin picked him up off the street and made this album. Is that true, Jeff? Yes, yes, yes he did. He, he actually saw him performing in, like, a dinner theater, like, in Orange County, if you can imagine. Mm. Um, and, and Rick really helped him return to his core sort of identity. And I think for years he maybe was working with, with producers or, or, who knows, artists or publicists who are encouraging to try to be something he isn't. Mm. And, you know, for a producer, you're really trying to bring out the, the best uh, part of an artist, the, the, their truest self, because that truth right. is what we respond to in music and in recordings. Right. You know, as a producer, think... Phil Ramone mm-hmm. said, uh, mm-hmm. his goal was not to put his own imprint on a recording. He felt mm. that a producer should be as transparent as possible. So his mm. goal was to make the artist as comfortable as they could be so that they would feel as little pressure and as much encouragement to just be themselves, as Jeff was talking about, mm-hmm. and just let the music flow. And that's what I see and hear in those Johnny Cash recordings. And, Jeff, you can correct me if oh, I'm definitely. wrong, but didn't Rick... Yeah. Rick Rubin literally set up in Johnny Cash's living room where he was mm-hmm. most comfortable and just let mm-hmm. him play and sing, which to me yeah. was exactly, you know, the, the, it underscored exactly what Phil Ramone was talking about. How much more comfortable could you get than that? And that is a great producer. Yes. Right. You, you want the artist to get into the zone and to feel, you know, it's so funny because I studied Greek philosophy in college. I know this sounds crazy. But, you know, if you read Plato, the, the sort of idea, ideal of the, the platonic teacher is to sort of, sort of guide the student to their best self. And it's just like there was so much reverberation of that idea uh, in sound breaking with certain producers. George Martin was definitely, you know, sort of bringing out the best in the Beatles and sort of like uh, the mid, midwife to their ideas. Uh, mm-hmm. And Socrates was mid, a midwife to his students. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that Sam Phillips played that role with Elvis. And then, you know, for us in Soundbreaking, it's, it's helpful to have contrast. And Phil Spector is a great person to contrast with George Martin because 
Bill Spector was like a dictator and he was like wringing these performances out of his artists. And of course the result is fantastic, but it's like, you know, he kind of crushed, crushed some of these people along the way. Right. Yeah. He was sure. He was was the artist in many ways. He wasn't trying to. Let me bring up. I I want to bring up an interesting story. I I worked with Billy Squire Mm -hmm. and and he did a dynamic album called Don't Say No. It starts off where he wants to get Brian May to produce, and Brian says, "No, use Reinhold Mack." Now this album turned out because of the raw guitar sound and the great songs, an incredible album, the best album he ever made. Um, he played the other night, and he even said that to him. This was the one album. What's really interesting is that a musician goes to, maybe before he didn't have that type of producer. Then he gets Reinhold Mack, and boom, he's skyrocketing. Then after that, he completely falls off the charts. Right, guys? You know that, that yeah. they, don't, they don't pick that producer, or they lose a sense, right? Maybe? Yeah, yeah I think no, there's I mean, a lot of reasons why that happens. Yeah. Go ahead, Jeff. No, no, <clears throat> Chuck. Chuck, you you go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I, I had seen that happen. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I'll, I'll use the Phil Ramone example again because I talked to him at great length when we were writing the yeah. book together. And, yeah. you know, sometimes it's the artist's choice. Sometimes the artist mm. uh, has a little bit of an ego after the first album. Mm. Yeah, and you know if if that first album is done well, they figure well, you know it's 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 really me. It's not the producer. Let me work yeah. with a different producer, maybe someone with a little more prestige. And then for some reason, the chemistry isn't there, and the yeah. album falls flat. And you know it's just a matter of luck and chance whether the artist can reclaim that ground, whether they can you know yeah. get back to where they were. Right. Uh, you know sometimes you don't want to mess with the formula. You know, right? Uh, and 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 the great string of Billy Joel and Phil Ramone albums is is a testament to that because mm-hmm. you know it wasn't until Phil stepped in as producer that Billy started to really hit his stride, and they just right. created hit album after hit album that is solid from every mm-hmm. perspective. So, right. yeah. you know what I wanted to ask really quick? Do you guys see the whole industry going back to simplicity because? I've seen a lot of people doing more um, unplugged versions and not so many overproduced type things, and they're in the studio with people that they really spend a lot of time with, and they get to know each other a little bit better on a on a hum, human level, so they know what to expect from them. You know, do you I, guys see I that think happening? There's always, I think there's always going to be room for both because mm-hmm. you can get great results doing both ways of recording, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. like Pink Floyd and some of these, uh, you know, incredible albums like Dark Side of the Moon that were so complicated, you know, it was a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at the Johnny Cash recordings we were talking about or, you know, or the unplugged like Eric Clapton recordings, you know, mm-hmm. they both uh, they both work. So it just depends on oh, the, the artist that and what, what they're trying to deliver. I mean, Bob mm-hmm. Dylan is a great example of a person that really keeps simplicity alive, right? Bob Dylan, all the way through his life. Yeah, Bob Dylan. For sure. Bob Dylan, definitely, yeah. yeah. Bob does a lot more unplugged. But you know what I wanted to say? You guys mentioned about studios in their home, in people's homes and stuff like that that they're doing. It's funny because here in uh, the area that I'm in, the Doobie Brothers are here and uh, Tommy Shaw, and everybody has their own studios. 
in their house. And it's great because I'll talk to them and let's say, oh, you know, I got up last night. I had this riff to my head and I had to go out to the studio and I had to record it, you know. And and it was just like something so, so simple for them to be able to do because they're not having to get into the car and call everybody and get them to open up the studio or go in there or wonder if anybody's in there. They've got their own studio. So like you said, you know, a lot of people have their own home studios. That's just like I think a lot of, uh, um, I think it's better for people because they're able to be more, you know, creative on the moment instead of, Mm -hmm. you know, planning it out and writing lyrics on the back of uh, menus. (laughs) Right, right. Well, I mean, certainly in the the early days, to, yeah. to record in a studio cost a fortune. So a band just yeah. to be able to get studio time was like a really big deal. And that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. why the Beatles had this incredible evolution because they blew up and suddenly they were the Fab Four and they actually had the resources to spend as much time in the studio as they wanted. Other bands would be like, have to go in and hur- hurry through all their recordings as quickly as they could because there was no money. And, the you know, mm-hmm. especially the record label wasn't putting right. a bill. So um, the, the evolution of technology really enabled people to take over that process. Of course, you know, one of the sad uh, realities of that now is that so many great studios have, have had to shut their doors because there's no more business. Uh, I mean, there's mm-hmm. fewer and fewer of them. Uh, I know that Electric Lady is still going strong here in New York, um, but uh, Chuck, you could probably talk more about that. I mean, there's just not nearly as many studios as there used to be. No, there's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, that whole trend towards home recording and using smaller local studios to do your album mm-hmm. as opposed to using a, a corporate a corporation studios like a Columbia Records or a Capitol Records, um, mm-hmm. it really affected the whole industry. And, and if you think about it, it's it's really uh, the reverse of what it used to be. You know, the industry used to be such that a label would uh, find an artist, would sign them. They would assign a producer to produce their record in their own studios. And now that's, that's pretty much uh, obsolete because most artists mm-hmm. will go to a label with a finished record that they recorded on their own, not in the company's studios. You know, they don't have to be um, sought out in a club by an A&R man anymore. They just, you know, get the demo in front of the right person and they can get right. signed to a distribution deal. The only major studio that is still in New York City that goes back any appreciable length of time is Power Station. And Mm -hmm. that was built, uh, designed and built by Tony Bon Jovi. And he opened that studio in 1977. It is one of the most remarkable acoustic spaces in the world, let alone New York City, and so many famous records were made there. And uh, for a time, it it operated under the name Avatar, but uh, in the last year, Berklee College of Music invested in Mm -hmm. the building, and Mm -hmm. it is now called Power Station Berklee NYC. Fantastic. It's amazing. Not one thing has changed in the main studios. The, the the board in the control room in Studio A and B still the same board with no automation. It's just it's just incredible. And 
And, and it's, it's really an anomaly because there's no other studio like this where even the gear is mm-hmm. the same as it was 40 years wow. ago. I mean, a huge blessing for Berkeley to step in and do that because it was, you know, these, these oh, precarious yeah. as, a, as a business model. Yes. But, you I know, there's, to, so, uh, there's so much history. So many great albums were recorded there. And it's like it's important no. that we preserve it. They're temples of sound in, in, many, in many ways. I used to Have go down there a lot because I worked with uh, Joan Jett, you know, and a lot of great artists. Sure. And, and I used to go yeah. down there a lot. It was phenomenal. And Tony um, actually hired me to do some album covers when he had a small record label for a while. But, uh, Chuck, you're right. And, and Jeff, th- this studio was carte blanche. This was like the Madonna, everybody you can name uh, in your head who, who was amazing would would record there, and I'm, I didn't even know that, what you were telling me. That's great news. Yeah, I'm writing Tony's book with him. And, oh, really? Um, wow. Yeah, we just, we oh, just had a fantastic. big celebration at Power Station a couple months ago with Berkeley. Oh, my God. They renamed it Power Station, and uh, it's, it's amazing. When you stand in that room with Bob Clearmountain, who started out at Media <laughs> Sound with Tony back in great, the 70s. Yeah. Uh, yep. You know, and he says, he says, I would do this here and do this there. But, you know, the genius was that Tony was not an engineer by training. When I say an engineer, mm. I mean an acoustic engineer. And he figured out how to get perfect sound in mm. Studio A. And I, I'll, mm. I will not forget walking up at a session to um, Randy Brecker. And I said, so you've played thousands of sessions all over the world. What is it about being here, sitting in this chair in Studio A, that you love? And he said, I can hear myself. He said, this room is the only Mm -hmm. room I've ever been in where I can actually hear what I'm playing without having headphones on. And Max Weinberg told me the same exact thing. He said, this (laughs) room is the first place where I ever really heard the sound of my drums. Wow. So. You know, that, that just speaks to the studio as an instrument because mm. the, the power station was where that really beautiful, heavy, signature 80s power drum sound came from. It was born right. in that oh, room. Yeah. Right. It was born in that room. So. I, I, I remember uh, Joan Jett going to a lot of sessions there and um, just run into like Springsteen and Clarence Clemens on taking a break from the river or something and... And yes. just the amb- the ambiance of that place and uh, uh, was amazing, you know. And then and Tony, Tony won. I got to tell you a great story. I I finished Billy Squire's album cover, and someone called me from the power station, and they told me, hey, he said Tony's running around with my album with Billy Billy Squire album cover, telling everybody that's recording this is rock and roll. This was the biggest compliment I think I ever had in my life. Wow, that's great. <laughs> and Tony wasn't That's a musician. Funny. This is just a guy that loved sound recording. He was not. Yeah. He started out at Motown as a 17-year-old, you know, and ended up being one of the world-class engineers and producers. But he wow. wasn't a musician. He wasn't a musical guy. He just loved sound and knew how to get good sound. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. part of the process. That's such a big part of this story. Are these unsung heroes uh, behind the board? You know. You know, the other thing I want to yeah, tell absolutely. you, a trivia thing, is that John, John Bon Jovi used to sweep the floors at the power station. <laughs> well, That's how he mm-hmm. weather. 
he says that whether he really swept the floors is debatable. Tony, Tony <laughs> yeah, gave, let's say Tony gave him his start. Tony that's gave him his start. Uh, yeah, right. story yeah. you'll, you'll read about it in our book. Yeah, you'll see it. <laughs> you know what I wanted to? Uh, that's what I wanted to ask you, um, Chuck, um, and also Jeff. I want to ask Jeff and Chuck both what they're currently working on. Chuck, I know you said you're working on a book right now. Um, tell our listeners a little bit more about that, and then I want to hear what Jeff's working on currently. Yeah, I have um. I have a bunch of things on my plate. I, 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 I'm definitely a poster boy for adult ADD, I think, because I just, you know, I have to be doing multiple things at the same time. Um, I'm actually working on three books. I'm, I'm just finishing up a book, a memoir with uh, the great Oscar-winning film composer, arranger, and songwriter Johnny Mandel, who is now oh, 93. Nice. He wow. wrote The Shadow Aww. of Your Smile and the music for MASH mm-hmm. and dozens of other films and, and you know, Grammy winner, Oscar winner, just a great guy. Um, mm-hmm. I'm working on the Tony Bon Jovi book. And then I am working on a book with producer Rob Fusari, who cut oh, nice. with the, yeah, Beyonce and Destiny's Child, but then yeah, yeah. The primary force behind the First Lady Gaga album and developing wow. an artist. So, those are the books I'm working on. Um, I'm uh, getting immersed in a Phil Ramone documentary that'll mm. hopefully take more shape over the next few months. Wow. And uh, working on some Sony Music projects. I, I produce all of the Sinatra issues at Sony Music Legacy Recordings, and we're doing Amazing. some new things for this year. Love Sinatra. And then I produce and yeah. co-host Nancy Sinatra's radio show every week. So that's that's my. Oh, it's great. Oh, how fun. <laughs> Yeah. That's cool. Oh, that's great. But I'm not wow. as busy as Jeff is. Jeff is the busy guy. Well, Jeff, <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, why don't you tell us a little? No, yeah. Jeff, I know you're really busy. I know that. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to say really quick, your um, soundbreaking uh, has been nominated for um, Emmys. I know that you've also had a couple different um, other things, you know, projects that you've worked on. So what are you working on now, and why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Um, sure. Well, I'm actually developing a couple of music documentaries, but I can't, I hate to say this, but I'm not really supposed to talk about No, it right I know. Now. You can't talk about it. <laughs> I get it. I know. It's, it's so that's so true. Yeah. let out. Incredibly no, I know. lame, I've heard that but before. it's true. Um, mm-hmm. And... Um, we, uh, I'm actually developing a film. I, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, I'm developing a uh-huh. film, uh, sort of an unsolved murder there from the 1960s of a, wow. a, woman, named Al- Alberta, a woman named Alberta Jones, who was uh, a lawyer. Uh, she was the first African-American uh-huh. woman to ever pass the bar exam in the state of Kentucky. Wow. And she, wow. Be- oh, wow. She, be- she, became, uh, she became Muhammad Ali's lawyer. Wow. Uh, uh-huh. Played a very big role in his career, early career, and then she became prosecuting attorney for the city of Louisville uh, in 1965. And then tragically, she was murdered uh, that same year. And uh, we are trying our best to solve this case. So um, I've actually wow. never done a crime, wow. crime documentary before, but um, uh, you know they say you can't go home again. I'm trying to go home again to my my hometown and see if we can solve this because she How was really cool ahead, ahead of her time and she she um she 
did huge voter registration drives in Louisville uh, among the African-American community, which was at, at the time was kind of a radical thing to do. And she was, she was a lawyer and a community leader and, um, uh, and she was just a real hero. So. Um, oh, that sounds great. Yeah. And then I'm uh, doing Jeff, a film, let, me, let me bring in uh, something. I want to bring Very in intriguing. something. Hold on. I want to bring in something, well, Jeff. Um, uh, if could you tell us? Uh, and by the way, uh, if we, I don't think we mentioned Sound Breaking is on a DVD that's out there, right? And but the other thing I want you to bring up is tell us the audience out here a little bit about these different episodes, so they get a, some sort of idea, just a little bit about each episode. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Um, yeah. So Sound Breaking is available on DVD and Blu-ray, actually, if you want it in high definition. Um, and it's available on Amazon uh, as well for download and on iTunes. Um, so there's lots of ways to watch it. PBS has been re-airing it. So when they re-air mm-hmm. it, you can also watch it online for a period of time. Great. Um, but, uh, and it was nominated for an Emmy as well as a Grammy Awards, uh, which was really mm-hmm. a thrill to be able to go to the Grammy, right. even though we, we so didn't cool. win. <laughs> Um, but we were still nominated, uh, though. Yeah, <laughs> we're no. Still nominated, though. That's awesome. We were we were super happy. Um, yeah. So uh, the breakdown of the series, the first episode, we decided to start with the central figure. So it really looks at the producer, the figure of the producer. What does the producer do? And then we look at a variety of different producers and sort of compare and contrast their styles to recording. Uh, the second episode is the one we've been talking about quite a bit on this uh, today, uh, which is about the evolution of multi-track recording and how that transformed the sound of popular music. Uh, episode three looks at recording a vocal. So it's about all the things a producer can do to transform the sound of a vocal or leave it as it is, capture it as it, you know, in its essence. So that's a great episode because it's really looking at all these different great uh, vocal recordings, Um, everyone from Frank Sinatra to, you know, Adele, um, you you know, you name it, Freddie Mercury, and all the different sort of ways that they um, created their signature vocal recording sound. Um, And then uh, episode four is called Going Electric, and it's about how electricity transformed the sound of music uh, from the electric guitar to the synthesizer to, um, you know, electronic music. Um, so it's a very oh. sweeping story uh, yeah. and lot, lots of terrific moments there. We, we do a great section on Stevie Wonder, a great section on Devo, a great section on EDM, and then the earlier stuff, a lot about The Who and uh, mm-hmm. The Rolling Stones. So it's really, really fun episode. Uh, oh, that's great. The following episode, uh, episode five, is about the rhythm track on a recording and how that has evolved, you know, going all the way back uh, uh, to the early days, you know, um, from Little Richard, you know, all the way up to the present to, to, to contemporary uh, music. So that's a super fun episode, and there's great stuff on disco and Nile Rodgers and um, – and then the let's see where are we now? <laughs> six, oh, the, seven. The, the sixth episode. The sixth episode is about sampling, and how sampling transformed music. So it's a lot about the rise of uh, hip hop, uh, which mm. has of course become the dominant <laughs> music genre. If there is a dominant one, I think uh, hip hop would be it in our world today. Um, 
And uh, let's see. Seven and eight, and we're done. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's what I thought we were doing. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> it's just so um, many. They're yeah, so, fantastic. Yeah, so seven is about the music video. Uh, it's a, it's really the story of MTV, but it's about how the visual aspect of recording um, really changed everything, and how the visual becomes became such an important aspect of how we experience music. Uh, so it looks at the, the evolution of the music video, but it goes back in time to the sort of antecedents, a lot about David Bowie, and then a lot about Madonna, Michael Jackson, um, you know, and then, uh, you know, it, we talk again about uh, um, Unplugged on MTV. Um, so that's a great episode. And then finally, uh, we do an episode on musical formats. So everything from the 78 to the 45 to the 33 mm. and then wow. uh, to cassette tapes, um, <clears throat> CDs, and then MP3. So it's really uh, about how musical formats um, sort of can uh, shape and dictate the art that is created. And Chuck, the oh, expert yeah, on that no. subject, <laughs> his commentary cool. is throughout that episode. So that's yeah, right. Vinyl, yeah. vinyl is coming yeah. back, guys, right? Yeah. Vinyl is back. Oh, yeah. oh big time. Yeah. Vinyl's always been back. Yeah, yeah definitely. It's going to be definitely there. You know, I love the trailer. I put the trailer up on um, the page, and I wanted to mention that Soundbreaking is also on the social medias. Um, you're on Twitter, and you're also on uh, Facebook as well. And mm-hmm. uh, you can go and follow all the different things. And what's really cool is I went to YouTube and I saw a lot of the different trailers. And it really features a lot of the different things. And I thought the one part was really funny about uh, where they were talking about sitting at the at the um, you know board there. And that Mick, um, Mick was sitting there along with Keith and they were talking about he was going to be the the meat in the sandwich or something. It was really funny. Yes. <laughs> no, no, yeah. That. Mick and Keith were arguing about what the next album was going to sound like, and right. you know, Don was is sitting there. That's he's great. the producer, and he's he's realizing that he's going to have to like you know be the the adjudicate between these two <laughs> you know iconic uh, recording artists. And yeah. and Keith looks at him. He's like, "You sure you want to be the meat in the sandwich?" <laughs> that is funny. that was that was See? great. That was a great comment. Yeah, yeah. Don uh, Don was Don was is like such an amazing guy, and he was such wow. a huge yeah. uh, friend of of the project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. See, I think a lot of the things that are in Soundbreaking are things that you had to be there moments um, that are that are actually that people get to relive and get to know about as you're talking and doing the interviewing and talking about all the different things that went into recording, like you talked about Fleetwood Mac and, you know, the things that, you know, people sound and the things that people go through. I think these are things that you can only hear if you're really watching or or really involved in some of these series. I think that's fantastic. Um, So we're really looking forward to the next uh, things that you're going to be doing. And Chuck, your books, that, those sound amazing. And Nancy mm. Sinatra's radio show, wow, <laughs> that's so cool. 
Tell yeah, me about that. I want, to hear about, I want to hear about that. What's that like? Well, you know, Nancy, she plays, our show started uh-huh. when Seriously Sinatra started. Seriously Sinatra is the uh-huh. Sinatra channel. And they came to Nancy when the channel started and said, would you consider wow. hosting a show? And she said yes. And then she asked me if I would, you know, be there with her as her producer and as her I guess, you know, Ed McMahon to her Johnny Carson in a way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we've been friends for a long time, so I said, of course. Now, Nancy, She's a very sweet woman, yeah. Oh, she's amazing. She is just, yeah. she's got such a generous and warm heart. Very nice person, And, yeah. and mm-hmm. she's a musician. And more than that, she really understands her dad's music. She adores it and, and yeah, wants see? to keep it alive and... Right. And that's really the, the, the whole reason why she agreed to do this. So it's a three-hour show once a week, mm. and she plays mm-hmm. a lot of Frank. We play things that no one has ever heard before from the Sinatra vault, from my archive, from all over the place. And uh, she talks a little bit about the music, tells a few stories, but it's just her way of keeping his music alive and, and getting people interested in Frank. And it's really an amazing thing. This is the 11th year we're doing the show. We've done about 415 shows so far. And, oh, you know, wow. I just got this email. I got an email from a 15-year-old kid this week, and he said, oh, I listened to you <laughs> and Nancy, and I have a question about this song. So I answered his question, and he wrote back and asked me another question. And, you know, I come to find out that this is a 15-year-old kid who loved the Beatles and loved Led Zeppelin. And then because his grandfather used to listen to our show and used to listen to Frank's Mm -hmm. music, he introduced the kid to it. And now the kid loves it. And he's asking me questions that no adult has asked me about this music, you know, like differences Mm -hmm. between arrangements and things. Yeah. It's amazing. So that was one of the sort of um, aspirations for sound breaking was to connect generations of, Music lovers, because Absolutely. you know a lot of kids, a lot Absolutely. of kids, they don't don't know a lot about the Beach Boys or mm-hmm. the, even the Beatles and like who they, you know, yes. right? And and so we, if we create these episodes that show the connection between the Beatles and Radiohead, for instance, you know, mm. young people who love Radiohead can see that there's like this, you know, incredible genealogy um, and connection between these eras, uh, and it really helps give them a context for. For the music they love, and a similar with, oh, yeah. with older folks who watch the show and are really excited about Frank Sinatra, they can see, you know, what you know how what, you know what he wrought and how you know young artists today are totally connected to him. Um, so mm-hmm. that was one thing that we really wanted to try to do. Well, you know, I Jeff, think that's you really important. You yeah. you guys hit that point so well because. You know, the thing is, is that it's educational, but you don't even know you're getting an education. It's so entertaining and enjoyable. It doesn't come across in any way as being an educational thing. (laughs) Right. It doesn't, but it is. And let me tell you, you know, I I think I know a little bit about music. I don't know everything. I've read a lot. I've spent a lot Mm. of time in the studio. But I have to tell you, I learned so much, and I was so fascinated by the series. It just blew me away, you know, and, and I can't say enough great things about it, Jeff. I can't wait to see your crime uh, 
uh, you know, oh, yeah, whatever you too. do with the crime drama, because you, I think Jeff, yeah. you know, I used to be a cop, right? Did you know that? Yes, of course. I, 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 my father yeah. is oh, wow. also a retired police Talk officer. You were yeah, a yes, cop? that's right. Really? I remember you told me. That. Oh yeah. my gosh! Yeah. So well, you're intriguing me. Like, I can't wait to air. see this. Yeah, yeah I can't wait great. to see this Jeff Dupre production. That's going to be so cool. But you know, good yeah, luck. Right. Well, Did you ever meet it's, that attorney, by the way? No, I didn't. She died in her. 1965, and I I was born wow. four years later. But it's interesting, wow. you know, to set out on a film where you don't know if you're actually going to solve a crime. So it's it's daunting. I mean, you know, it was da- it was daunting for me to fly over to meet George Martin for the first time, and just be wow. like on on the airplane and say like, what can I say new about <laughs> the Beatles and this film oh, that hasn't no, been said a million times? And you know, yeah. for soundbreaking, it's really about putting all these stories in a new context and understanding them in a new way. And what, you know, that's, that's what we were hoping to do, but it was, you know, it was pretty, it was like, you know, we, we wanted to, to do a great job for him because he's given us such incredibly wonderful gifts. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. It's amazing. You did. It is. Mm. You know, Chuck, what is your website, Chuck? So people have your website as well. My website is very simple. It's Chuck Granata. G-R-A-N-A-T-A dot com. Chuck Granada dot com. I don't know. Cool. And it. you it's can really get your book. Oh, yeah, it is. It's so complicated. <laughs> I, just, I can't think. No, so we can find your book there. And, you know, uh, yeah. we would love yeah. to have you back um, when you do this book. And, Jeff, um, you know what I wanted to ask you? You said that the woman that you're going out to make the film out that uh, in your hometown that was murdered, she used mm-hmm. to manage Muhammad Ali? She, when Muhammad Ali was very early in his career, when he was still Cassius okay. Clay, he, there were a group of, uh, of Louisville businessmen who invested in him, and, okay. uh, and she negotiated the contract. And she was very wow. smart because she wanted to protect him, and she wanted – she put – his earnings in a trust so he wouldn't mm-hmm. he wouldn't be tempted to go out and spend it and so she wow. kind of like looked, looked after him in that way it was because they grew up in the same neighborhood she was almost like family yeah but you know she so i'm she, the fact that he chose this a woman to be his lawyer at the time was a you know it was quite an accomplishment if you can imagine amazing being a being a, an african-american woman in kentucky in the late 50s and saying like i'm gonna go to law school um that was a big deal so i just She's just uh, no. really a courageous Interesting. figure. That's fascinating. Yeah, you know, definitely. You know what I wanted to do was I'm wondering if there's any photos that my friend has because my friend did the Muhammad Ali book, uh, well, one of the books on him, uh, Al Satterwhite, and he may have some pictures of her. So I'm going to ask him. I'm going to connect you two together. There may be some pictures, and he may have. Um, some knowledge of some things. So I think you two should talk because I know he that did that one book on him. Yeah, he's awesome. He was a photographer and did some stuff with Kodak, with Kodachrome. So I've had him oh, wow. on my show quite a few times too. Yeah, he uh, was around when Kodachrome was coming out. So, yeah, that was a pretty That's cool amazing. show we did with uh, Al. Yeah, no, and, uh, you know, this is interesting because, you know, to go from one type of thing to the next, you know, you're going from music now to a murder. That's just, uh, that's so cool, you know. Um, you've done other things besides that. You've done, 
you're involved with a lot of uh, nonprofit type people, aren't you? Don't you do a lot of work with a lot of people? That yes, we uh, we've done lots uh-huh. of films in the, in the women and girls uh, space. I guess you would call it that. We uh-huh. we did a series with the the New York Times uh, reporter Nick Kristoff and and Cheryl Wudan, his wife, who are Pulitzer Prize winning writers, and we did a series called Half the Sky, uh, which looks at sort of all the worst things that are happening to women around the world. And we look at solutions for some of those issues, you know, everything from female Mm -hmm. mutilation to sex trafficking and um, forced prostitution. And we, we went all over the world and did stories in Cambodia and Kenya and India, and of course the U S and, you know, that, but the idea was always to look towards solutions for these issues and not just the problem. This is cool. Excellent. Yeah, no. that's that's really that's, neat. That's amazing. Yep. Is Very it? Cool. It, it? It is. Yep. Um, you know, I know that we're running a little over. I hope you guys have a few moments because we were. This is such a great show talking about all the different things that are going on within the recording industry, and then all the other things that go along with it. And Chuck, your book sounds. Your books that you're working on sound so amazing. Hey, Holly, exactly. oh, Holly, I'd like to ask yeah. Chuck a question. Mm-hmm. Um, Chuck, you know, sure, I'm, very involved with, I'm very involved with vinyl. Uh, I don't know if you know that. I, I, I was, we were judging a vinyl show with Jack White up in Detroit, by the way. Um, wow. But I want your viewpoint on vinyl right now in music, the usage of vinyl. It's been selling, of course, a lot, and a lot of the big companies are putting it on the A-list. But I wanted to get your viewpoint on vinyl, where, where you think about it. Well, the vinyl today, to me, is much better than the vinyl of my youth in terms of quality. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I was kind of an armchair audiophile, so, you know, I didn't, I didn't like to get records that were defective and had a lot of surface noise and crackle and pop, and I would send them back to the record company. Well, you know, fast forward now, uh, what, 35 years, and uh, uh, we've transcended the CD format, and we're back to vinyl. But the vinyl that they're producing today is of a much higher quality, by and large. Mm. Uh, you know, so you can right. really buy some extraordinary sounding records that are, are, are crafted. And when I say crafted, I mean that in every sense of the word, by mm. engineers and people who really know how to take analog tape and translate it to analog vinyl. Right. And, you know, th- you, you put them on and they're breathtaking. I mean, you really hear great sound. Unfortunately, a lot of the record labels are simply taking their digital files and they're translating that to vinyl. So, exactly. You know, you yep. Yeah, yep. you don't get the full analog experience. I mean, there is a difference, but, uh, mm-hmm. but it's a fun thing. You know, my girls are 22 and 26, and, you know, they have pretty substantial vinyl collections and they listen to it and they buy it and they enjoy it. And I think that's so much a part of loving music as a fan yeah. Yeah. Is, is the tactile part of it. You know, getting an album and ripping the cover, op- you know, getting the cellophane off and opening the cover. Spencer, you're it's an artist. Of it. you I mean, yeah, I, and, Chuck, Chuck, you know, I was a Grammy judge this year and the, 
the head of the Grammy Committee, um, it's my fifth time, I'm very honored, uh, fifth time selected, but what I want to bring out to you, which you'd be interested in, is that when I went to judge the Grammys this year, he told me, he said, Spencer, you're going to see a lot of vinyl. When I went to the table and saw what was on the table with all the entries, most of it was vinyl. And by the way, not only that, but die-cut packaging, very intricate Lot, yes. Yeah, people think it's just the front and the back, right, Chuck? It's not just that. Right now, people no. are paying for very intricate, well-made packaging, right? Yes. You know, it's interesting because we we we've the, the music industry has gone through so many different cycles. You know, we started out as uh, singles back in the '40s, '30s, and '40s with '78s. Now. We're back to singles as downloads. Now we're back to singles mm. as streaming. We're back to mm. vinyl. Um, right. What's really right. interesting is that people are willing to pay a premium for an LP that's got deluxe packaging and special artwork. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're not right. necessarily willing to pay for a CD package of that, you know, that detail. So CDs, you know, I mean, I work at Sony Music and CDs are basically dead. As a medium, you know they're they're doing mm, right. very little in right. terms of physical product. Um, we're we're, right. we're we're pressing far more LPs than they are CDs. Right. And um, and there's some mighty fine sounding vinyl out there. You know, so if you mm-hmm. have a good system, a moderately good system, you know, you can really hear some very fine music on mm-hmm. And and Chuck, by the way, I'm doing a vinyl show in 2019. I'm going to invite both of you in New York. It's planned. I would love to come. Definitely. It's going to be 45, and uh, that's why I want to invite you and Jeff. It's going to be 45 and 12-inch and 10-inch. And I've got, like, Sub Pop Records, who has been around since 87, you know, they're really into the vinyl, 45 and up. They sent me four boxes to my house the other day of of LP vinyl and 45s, 12-inch, 10 inch. I couldn't believe it. Jeff Kleinsmith. He's a very good friend of mine. He's been in my books, but, but they are doing, you can see the intensity. And, and when I'm buying stuff from my collection, I look over the world and I see all these 45s and all this stuff. And I say, wow, this is a whole different world, right? Right, Chuck? It's, it's a it's, different world. It's totally crazy. I mean, you know, there's so many different editions of albums, different colored vinyl and you know, mm-hmm. if we're back to that collecting craze where, you know, you can't have it all, but, you, have, you know, you want it all, you know. Um, by the way, I'll just throw a plug in since we're talking about vinyl. This year oh, yeah. is the mm-hmm. 70th anniversary of the LP record. Wow. Which was oh, wow. developed, nice. invented I by Columbia Records. Yeah, the, oh, first, the first 10-inch LP came out in June of 1948. Oh, my and God. Oh, nice. George and the great jazz producer that worked at Columbia was in charge of picking the jazz and pop albums that Columbia put out on 10-inch LP uh, when they first started. And the very first Columbia Records pop LP, number CL6001, was (laughs) the voice of Frank Sinatra. Oh, my God. And eight songs with Axel Stordahl. It's considered Sinatra's very first concept album. So wow. in the commemoration, very one, really? the wow. very first LP, pop LP, to ever be pressed and released. So this year, uh, in a couple months, uh, we are reissuing an exact reproduction of that record through Vinyl oh, Me no Please. Way. So 
Yeah, Sony Music, oh, Legacy wow. Recordings, and Vinyl Me Please are doing Hey, Chuck, Chuck, you got to get edition. in touch with me on that because uh, I'd like to put it in the show, okay? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, and by the way, you know, yeah, definitely. We're, we're reproducing the paper sleeve, everything. It's oh, my beautiful. God. You know, I, you know what I want to bring up here is in the 45 book that I put out that you were so, so wonderful to write a piece on. Incredible, by the way. Uh, the, what I noticed was also the graphics of that era. The graphics on the cover was, it was just as good as today on, on really good graphics. You know what I mean? Oh, I mean, yeah. the way well, they yeah, treated the had... artwork and the typography, right, right, Chuck? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, you had, first of all, you were coming out of a very um, strong graphic era, the 1940s, mm. right? So the post-war right. graphics... You know, the, the designers were people like Alex Steinweiss and, right. you know, uh, Jim Flora. These are people who mm-hmm. did uh, war bond posters and, you know, uh, commercial billboards for big companies. I mean, these were the best designers you could find. And all of a sudden, in the 40s, mid to late 40s and early 50s, they got their start as, as record cover designers. And, you know, that's, as you know, Spencer, that's a big part of my passion. Is That's right. Artwork. <laughs> so, you know, I collect the covers, those seven and ten inch. I mean, I just, I, I love the art. It's just amazing to me. I mean, I mean, you gave mm-hmm. me the 50s section literally, and it was like everything I went through. I, I couldn't put a lot of them in, of course, because of the book pagination. But I could have done a, a book maybe on just 50s. But the, the what you chose, those covers, and I'm sure you have a lot more, uh, just incredible graphics. I mean, quality. We're talking about quality here, right? Yeah, they so it's an amazing show then. of um, what was going on during that era, you know. Yeah, it really is. It's it's an, it's just an amazing thing. Jeff, you could do a documentary just on that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think yeah, that's a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> that I don't know what the market would be, but there's there's, there's probably <laughs> no, no, comparatively few not Absolutely, like a gr- great, a great, fantastic idea for a film. Sure. So. Well, I know where you can get I mean, some of the covers. I mean, people don't realize, like, Andy Warhol, Andy Warhol was doing that, Chuck, right? Andy Warhol yes. did jazz albums during that era. Yeah, and some classical albums, too, and um, yeah. uncredited. Well, you know, like those. <laughs> yeah, well, later, yeah, later. I mean, we're talking, like, some of the early records in, in, the, in the early to mid-50s, he was, you know, before That's he right. really became famous. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, they're hard to come by now, you know? Yeah, they definitely but, yeah. are. I think that the sound was, it has definitely changed. <laughs> yeah, it is. I can't wait to hear that Frank Sinatra album. You know, Spencer knows I love Frank Sinatra. Yeah, the Smithsonian uh, album that, uh, that uh, I mean, Holly, the Smithsonian, Frank Sinatra is one. Your ear, your, your ear and your head will go nuts. I'm telling you. It's a beautiful Where, where can I get collection. that one? I'll make sure that when that it comes one? out, we get you guys, Jeff and, and Holly and Spencer, I'll get you copies. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, that would be yeah. so amazing. The Frank Sinatra copy, you got to get to us. The Frank Sinatra copy, yeah, you got to get no. from my vinyl show in Hollywood. Totally Lowe, love. Yep. Yeah, we'll do that. Definitely. Oh, yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thank you. And for the show, for cool. the show itself, yeah, no, thank you. And we would love to maybe have you on when that's released and we can talk that's about it. That's a good it. idea. Um, good idea. Sure, yeah, be because, you know, with the release. Yeah, yeah I'd like to, to invite you back. Just let that's, me know. We love you back, Chuck. We love you back. Yeah, this yeah, is great. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Jeff, you've, you've, you've basically really, with this sound-breaking stories from the cutting edge of recorded music, 
that whole series has really, you know, made a lot of people, they have a clear, I think, a clear understanding. And the thing that you said about the generation and the kids learning more, they do. They really, really connect to that. I'll be right up. Um, no, don't um, worry about so it. What, and we actually were Busy able to create some, uh, some comprehensive um, educational Hi, modules. Sorry. Anyway, uh, yeah. So. Yeah, uh, we, we, we created a whole educational program with the series as sort of companion uh-huh. piece so the teachers can teach it in their classrooms. And it's distributed by um, the Rock and Roll Forever Foundation, which is Stephen Van Zandt's oh, uh, organization that, that yeah, works to, that. Uh, on music education. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, cool. So uh, you can go to teachrock.org well, we teach to, to learn more about that. Oh, hey, but listen, Jeff, cool. everybody okay. should go out and get the DVD on Soundbreaking because if you want to know music and sound and everything about it, get this series. Right, Holly? This is the series to buy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's available on DVD and Blu-ray, you said, right? Didn't you say, um, Spence, you were getting a copy yeah, of that Yeah, or DVD. What? yeah, DVD. Yeah, I'm sorry. The Blu-rays right. are on, 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 yep. on route to you. Yeah, and oh, awesome. Blu-ray's and, awesome. I got yeah, a Blu-ray you, player. Um, Perfect. Good, yeah, good, you good. You packed it with some extras, right? Didn't you pack some extras on the Blu-ray? Yeah, and there's, the uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of extra material, interviews and outtakes, and uh, there's lots of great, oh, great cool. little goodies in there. So. Ooh, I'm looking it's forward amazing. to that. Well, Jeff, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be really excited when I get that, and uh also, Chuck, I too. can't wait to have you back and yeah. do the uh, the thing with Frank Sinatra. And, uh, wow, you're working yeah, on the Sinatra's show. is so Sinatra cool. Thing, yeah. I love that. That's, I love that. Well, to both of you, um, I know that it sounds like you're busy, um, Jeff, and I, I know we went a little bit over, and I really want to tell everyone I appreciate them being here. I know Spencer has a little bit of... Uh, um, reviews he wants to do about uh, a Mick Rock um, show well, last night. Holly, I've got to ask one question to Chuck. i got to ask one. Chuck, when, uh, it, when, will the, when will the Frank Sinatra release uh, come out to be public? You know, I'm not certain of the exact street date, but okay. um, we're on Facebook together, so I will make sure that I post it. You know, I know it's going to come out on Vinyl Me Please, and we put it into production about oh, a week good. ago. So, and it's oh, cool. uh, it'll come with a nice full color booklet inside with some artwork wow. and some new notes, and it'll be nice. So, sure. uh, you know, Vinyl Me Please does a really nice job, and they're one of our partners at Sony Music. So, do I have um, you? Do I have you on Facebook? Uh, I'm looking for you for, on I don't Facebook think so, right Holly, now. But, Holly, friend yeah, we should, Holly, friend should friend yeah, each yeah. other. I am now. Yeah, and I'm on yeah. with Jeff, so yeah, you guys will know when it comes out. I'll let you know in advance. I tried to too. find Great. you, Jeff. I couldn't find you, Jeff. I found uh, <laughs> your soundbreaking page, me, but I couldn't find you. Find on Facebook? Yeah, I couldn't find you on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, oh, too, good. guys. That's, Everyone else oh, is on good. Instagram. I think we're all going there. <laughs> oh, wait. Now, everybody's... No, 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 no. Uh, no not, that, not that you couldn't find me, but I'm like, you know, whatever. <laughs> no. I don't mind being a little more Stop. anonymous on Facebook. <laughs> um, Chuck, I'm going to find you right now while I'm on because I'm, I'm kind of double posting here. So, Great. yeah, that's awesome. Um, is, it, is this and still the a... show or is it over? I can't tell. Yeah, we're on, we're on the air. You can we're on the air live with Jeff and Chuck <laughs> and Holly and Spencer right here live. 
Yeah. This is the nice we're, thing about a podcast, you know. It's kind of like sitting around in the living room or the office. <laughs> <laughs> it's like doing a home studio, right? I mean, you know, that's what it's yeah. like. It's like you're just doing an open mic, kind of like an unplugged version. We we like, like to do that. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of like an, of open, an open an uh, open forum where you can just say what you know is going on. You got people coming in and out of your office, you know, asking you questions. Yeah, Holly, you know what it's like? You know? It's like the Franklin Franklin Delano Roosevelt fire fireside talk on radio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That's a great analogy, man. <laughs> it is. Very cool, very cool. And you know what? I'm going to start tuning in to Nancy Sinatra's show because, you know, I I know that I know some people that listen to it, and uh, wow, I'm, like, blown away. Way uh, cool, way cool. um, Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, do you guys want to stay around to hear um, Spence's review about Mick Rock's uh, event last night, which, by the way, um, Spence, I saw – it was stream live, so I saw oh, a lot of it. Oh, that's great. It was very yeah, cool. Yeah, I saw that you saw it. Mm-hmm. Wow, cool. Yeah, yeah. I can stick around. Um, uh, I, 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 would, I would love to, but I have to go uh, 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 to a dinner. Uh, it's, it's later here oh. in New York. <laughs> yeah, enjoy, okay. Jeffrey. Enjoy. Yeah, great, great talking to you guys. Thank you so much. You great having yeah, you on. I need, I, need to, I need to talk to you about those mysterious music films. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Jeff, before you go. Before you go, listen, I'll be in touch with you. I have your number so I can get you in touch with Al, and uh, we can talk a little bit more about the other things that we spoke about a little bit. Sure, Perfect. that would be Thank great. Thank you so much for being here. Thank Thanks, you. guys. We love. Bye-bye. Thank you. Have a great hey, weekend. Take care. Happy take care, Jeff. We'll see you. Everybody. Thanks, Spencer. Yeah. Bye, Chuck. Oh, my pleasure. Bye, all of us. All of us. Great pleasure. Thank you. Hi. So this is cool. So Spence, your 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 review is going to be on now. Yeah, uh, Holly and I do this thing. Yeah, Yeah, we do a little news, pop culture news, and we're up to date with some uh, events that I've been to, and maybe Holly's been on the West Coast. Uh, You know, we do a very short thing, very short thing. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah, we do. But you're going to love the song. We're going to. I'm going to play it. I want you're going to love the song, Chuck. You're going to love the song. I was actually going to go straight into the reviews, but you know what I want to do? I want to play the song because it always makes me laugh. You're going to love it, Chuck. <laughs> Hold on. All right. Don't go anywhere. Here we go. Who wants yesterday's paper? Who wants yesterday's gun? Who wants yesterday's paper? Nobody in the world.
And as I'm unmuting everyone, I want to say something really quick. Isn't that a great song, Chuck? I love it, man. That is amazing. <laughs> I have to tell you, okay, really quick, wait, Spencer. Okay, so, Chuck, I found you on Facebook, and I asked for your uh, friend, and I saw that you have Robert. Um, I know Robert Davi really well. I've known Robert, God. Let's oh, wow, see. Robert's a very good friend 35 of mine. 35 years? 35 wow. years, yeah. Wow, I that's amazing. Robert, I know Robert. I know Robert from Beverly Hills when he and Arnold and, uh, oh, God, whoever else, everybody was hanging out Everyone. at the cigar shop. Yep. No, it's yes. like Nathan's Cigars at the Grand Passage. And uh, oh my gosh, I knew Robert. So he used to come in and play with my daughter, by the way, who's now, you know, a new mommy. But, um, Aww. yeah. Congratulations. Uh, Robert, That's great. Robert loved Robert loved Alex, and, uh, you know, Robert is such a great guy. I love Robert. He so is. when I went to your page and I saw that you had Robert Davi on there and everything, it was just like, wow, that's great. That's great, yeah. <laughs> Listen, Robert, He's an awesome Robert person. is appearing, he sings, and he has I a know. couple of really nice uh, albums out, and mm-hmm. he will be appearing at Feinstein's at 54 Below, Next wow. week in oh, New York wow. City, May 16th and 17th. So I'll be there on the 16th to cheer him on oh, and really? hang out. Yeah, yeah. You should come by, Spence. Oh, wow. It's, it's I a will. great night. He's hey, a well, I'm, I'm, gonna gonna try to, I'm trying to come to New York, okay? <laughs> well, I'm trying to come Try, Holly. Try. Try, Holly. <laughs> I, I, listen, I was in L.A. most of January, and I stayed at Robert's house. So. Wow! Oh, that's great. Wow. That is great. Oh. Wait soon. I'm coming back in June. So he's such a great person. Wait. Has a huge heart and uh, huge heart. Yeah, he Just a he and boy, loyal. He and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Dolph Lundgren and uh, yep. God, they all used to hang out, smoke those cigars <laughs> over at Nathan's, and then they yep. go to Cafe Roma. You know, and have yeah. tea or whatever. I've gone yeah. I've been there a few times with him to Cafe Roma. Yeah, have you? it's amazing. Do you like it? Yeah. 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 Great place. Yeah, it's fun. He's he's yeah. you know, he's a have good cool. hang. Robert, great hang, man. He's funny. He's a good guy. Funny, funny, he is funny. funny. Yeah. He has I'm a great actually, personality. Um, this is so far in the future for me, but you know, I am. Uh, it's on the back burner, but I am working on a psychological thriller that uh-huh. features a homicide detective. And Robert is oh, gray. the person oh, in no, my mind. Gray. Like, I'm actually I'm a very visual writer, so I'm writing, mm-hmm. and as I'm 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 writing about the detective, it's Robert in my mind, and I could see Robert oh, yeah. as a detective and playing this role, you know. But uh, that's that's a couple of years off because I have so much going cool. on. I have to finish out. But Robert is just so amazingly talented. I mean, he can mm-hmm. sing opera, he can sing pop, he can mm-hmm. he can write, mm-hmm. he can he's a great actor. Have you seen his documentary, Davi's Way? Yes, I have. It it's, it's fun, so you know. He awesome. he can poke fun at himself, you know. So it's pretty cool. He's a great man. Wow. That's so great. Yeah. I love that. I, I you know you know him and you're hanging out with him, that's even better. You know, he's uh yeah. he's a very special person. He um, is. He is. He's very got giving. a lot of work. 
so much work. He's, you know, you know he's, he's got he's, that series. He's like, yeah, he's done the series. Um, he's like one of those great character actors from the 40s. Mm-hmm. They're in mm-hmm. so many things. And, mm-hmm. you know, you just want them to have a breakthrough on their own. But I think they have a bigger career as a character actor, some of them. You know, like they mm-hmm. do more and they're so effective. But, I, I, you know, Robert is just such a great visual, you know. I know he plays the heavy most of the time, but he's he's just uh, – well, he's really a softy and a the Goonies. What about the Goonies? Oh, I love when he was in the Goonies. I oh my God! Yeah, he's so great there. That was Good the stuff. Best. I'm sorry, Spencer. We were we were. Oh, it's we okay. Had a bit there. Just, we no, what's about... going on? Yeah. No, that's fantastic. That's very nice. So Spencer's anyway, review, man. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about Mick Rock. Mick Rock. You're on. So Mick Rock, so I went to, uh, hello, love, Holly. I went to Mick Rock <laughs> last night at the Brooklyn Museum. And Mick and I, I don't know, Chuck, I designed uh, the very famous Ramones End of the Century album cover, which was on tour with Mick's photograph, one of the most iconic uh, front cover album photos next to I Love Rock and Roll and the Queen album. Anyway, he was speaking at the Brooklyn Museum last night. He showed photographs. Uh, went through the stories of each photo and also, which was really amazing, videos that people have never seen with stories behind them, which I didn't even know about, never saw before. That was really amazing. And it was a packed house and uh, talked with Mick, and we were very good friends. And uh, let me tell you, it was a great event, and I'm really glad I went out there to see it. And um, basically, uh, Mick's all over the place right now. And, and by the way, there's a David Bowie thing going on with the Paley center i just got an email uh the subway has something to do a subway station has something to do with uh david bowie uh things going like an event going on on a sunday and uh there's all this bowie stuff going on right now with the bowie show which is big at the brooklyn museum which everybody should see by the way it's a very uh um, amazing show it seems like everybody's seen it that i've talked to say it's a you must go maybe even two times it's so intense and uh i have to see that show but it was a great event last night for mick and uh mick has been on our show holly and i both are very close with him he's been on our show and he has uh the new Toshin book the bowie book which has been out for a while but uh, his newest book beautiful book on bowie and um Anyway, it's the Lou Reed and, uh, you know, the Bowie thing and, and mixed life, you know. Very cool. Yes, let's talk about last night and about what he did because it was interesting. I saw some of it. Yeah. Well, the photograph lineup was interesting. I mean, he, he starts off with a Q&A, if you saw it, um, and it's kind of like he goes into his life and shows some of the most Sid Barrett photographs, um, uh, Iggy photographs, uh, uh, different different people. Um, Rocky Horror Show, the famous uh, actor. Uh, just just a, a a series of people he's worked with. Uh, the videos are early Bowie videos of, of, of three different songs. Uh, amazing videos, which no one really has seen um, a lot. And um, that's interesting, too. But the thing about Mick, which I, I've worked with so many great photographers on album covers, and uh, he, to me, was one of the best color photographers I ever worked with. His uh, sense of color 
is beyond a lot of people. Maybe the closest that I could think of is Anton Corbin, who I work with on YouTube packaging for Octung Baby. He's a dynamic color photographer, almost like a painter, and mix very high-end in color, uh, like Anton. But there's not many really photographers. I mean, they're good at color, good in black and white, and Mick is good in black and white, by the way. But he has an exceptional range in color, which I can't even describe. But if you see the album covers, like I Love Rock and Roll and The Century, Queen, or whatever, you'll see the usage of color, the videos, uh, a very high-end use of color makeup on David. You know what I mean? The whole, uh, the styling and everything. Uh, uh, by the way, set on a white background, which he talks about, very interesting. He did a lot of his stuff set on a white background so that the things would pop out. You know, it's, uh, and if, uh, I'll tell you one album that's very stark with that, The Pretender's first album. They're photographed with a white background. There's something about that co cover that's very intriguing. And anyway, Mick, Mick uh, has a great sense of color. Uh, uh, it was a very exciting show, you know, Holly, and um, a lot of stories. I mean, he came. Yeah, if you saw the thing, the stream, he had so many stories. It was really crazy, right? Mhm. Mm yeah. No, he always has stories about the different, you know, things behind yeah. the art. What else, What else do you have to review besides the McRock? I know that you were um, recently oh, at another event. Well, tonight is very big. Uh, Max Heller who director of mm -hmm. Born Guilty with the Rosanna Arquette, uh, and we had Max on our show, the director. He's having a premiere in New York tonight, as we're talking, and I got invited to the after party, which will be at the um, um, this place on 42nd Street. Uh, but he's having a premiere of a movie. That's kind of a big thing in my life. Uh, and Justin was here, Judas' son, who edited the movie. So I think he's going to be there. But anyway, that's another event, um, Skyroom. And he invited everybody. So i got to tell you, Max Heller sends me his email. I invite everybody to the Skyroom. So from 10 o'clock on, you can party out at the Skyroom. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. What do you have going on this weekend, Chuck? Have you been to any events that uh, you want to talk about that maybe you want to let our listeners know about that are coming well, up or anything? Well, I was. Yeah, I had kind of a busy week. I uh, I used to be on the board of the New Jersey Hall of Fame. And mm -hmm. even though I'm not a board member anymore, I went to last week's induction ceremony at the Paramount Theater in Asbury Park because my nephew received a scholarship from the Hall of Fame, which was very nice. And uh, Bruce Springsteen came and inducted wow. little Stephen. Oh, oh, really? Gloria yeah, Gloria Whoa. Gaynor came and was inducted and sang. Oh, Debbie great. Harry was inducted and sang. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg was the hostess, the MC. Uh, got to see Buzz Aldrin, my buddy Buzz Aldrin. So it was a really oh, great. Oh, I love Buzz. Week. Yeah. Uh, Buzz is phenomenal. Nice. He's a great guy. Uh, uh -huh. Good friends with Nancy Sinatra and her mom too. He's he's just a sweet guy. So that that started my week, and then I saw a couple of really great jazz guys, Ken Poplowski who wow. is uh, mm -hmm. an amazing clarinetist and big Sinatra mm -hmm. fan in New wow. Jersey. And I saw the, uh, the legendary Dick Hyman, who is a great pianist wow. and wow. composer and has done many, many uh, wonderful things on television and in the studio and uh, on records. So it was a great week. I got to just like hang out and see great music and hang with great people 
And uh, this week, I'm just this weekend, I'm just kicking back and celebrating Mother's Day with my wife and my kids. That's it. Right. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's you nice. know, yeah. it's like it's really important. You know, this weekend I think is really important for a lot of people, and I want to stress that there are a lot of again. I want to wish everyone a happy Mother's Day. Be it that if you're a mother, expecting mother. Um, a uh, husband that's taken over a mother's role because the mother is away or, you know, you're you're really prominent in that child's life in taking over that role, you know, happy Mother's Day to you. Um, there's so many people out there that just, you know, I think that, uh, you know, Mother's Day is every day, but, you know, we're all really thinking about our mothers more so, I think, during this holiday and uh, you know, just create new traditions and stuff like that. That's kind of cool. Can do mm-hmm. that. Definitely. You know? so definitely. Definitely. That's what's definitely. important. Yeah. It really it is, is important. It is. Mm-hmm. What are you guys? Uh, what are you doing, think, Holly, for the weekend out on the West Coast? Ah, uh, well, you know, my daughter just had a baby, so um, oh. I'll be I'll be uh, thinking about that and. Uh, Celebrating, you know, those moments and stuff like that. Beautiful. So, you know, my mom. You know, it's it's always really good because you can. You also, I celebrate a lot of people that I know who are mothers that you know they may not have anybody to come over and celebrate for them. So I always, you know, think about that too. So I want to I want to mention I want to mention something to Chuck. Uh, Chuck, I think I mentioned, but I want to mm-hmm. make sure you know. The book that we did, the 45 RPM, which was the first book on a 45 records of history. By the way, listen to this. It's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame permanent collection. That's a very big lifetime legacy. So I want you to know. That's amazing. You're, you're part of the book, and you're in this Thank collection, you. and it'll always be there, and people can uh, reference it. You know what I'm saying? Well, you know, people will, will mention that to me. They'll tell me that they have the book and that they enjoyed it and, you well, know, I'm I'm, I'm yeah. really a lucky guy to have been able to do things that I love and meet people that oh. you know, are are you know important to me and and have influenced me. You know, I could never have imagined meeting so many of these great people. You know, including yourself. I mean, you know, great artist, graphic artist, working on album covers. I mean, that album covers are like my life. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I know. So. It's amazing. It's just been a great, a great opportunity. Yeah, and, uh, that was awesome. a good book. You know, we... That was a great book, man. A oh yeah, not only a great book, but I got to tell you, Chuck, you have great taste. I mean, I've been a Grammy judge for years. I have to judge these things. I, I think I have good taste. But your selection of what you collect is—I can't even describe the people. It's beyond words. They're quality covers. And I mean quality. Well, a lot of people don't get into that or understand the quality line, but you have it totally. So I want to well, you know, say did, that to I you. Did, I used to be a photographer, so I have a very visual sense, and I really love design, and I love art, fine art. So, yeah. you know, I've kind of right. uh, gravitated well, towards the more intriguing stuff, you know, which is cool. But yeah. you do such beautiful covers. I mean, I have to get you to sign a few of my covers. That oh, that thank you. Designed, I love it. So, It'd be an honor for know. me, Chuck. We'll have to get together. Yeah, because sure. I display these things. I display them, and you know, so it would be wonderful. Oh my God, I love it. Yeah. 
We'll, we'll have to get together <laughs> for great. once very definitely, soon. Definitely, definitely, Chuck, soon. definitely. That'd be great. I'd love it. It'd be a big thing with this me. Is, uh, this has been a great treat, guys. I'll come back anytime you want. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. You're coming back we with the Sinatra for you. Back. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, – for everyone listening, if you missed the beginning of the show, it'll be available on iTunes, and also it'll be available on Red Velvet Media, Blog Talk Radio, under a special edition under the Indie Cafe on demand. You can download it, listen to it, and uh, we'll be back next Friday. And uh, for everyone listening, it's Friday. Please don't drink and drive. And uh, celebrate this weekend. Go into it with a full heart and love. And, you know, I'm ending the show with one of the artists that they did have on Soundbreaking Stories from the Cutting Edge of Recorded Music with one of my favorite songs by Joni Mitchell, which is mm. called uh, California. California. Mm-hmm. So uh, wow. we're going to end with that. Yeah. So nice. with that, cool. I wanted to say goodbye to everyone and uh, have a great Thank weekend. Thank you, Holly, and thank you, Spencer. You guys oh, have we love you. Too. We love you, Chuck. You so know awesome. that. So you'll be back. And uh, thanks, Holly. Thanks, Holly. I'll I'll speak to you soon. Bye, guys. Bye. You guys go. Happy happy Mother's Day, guys. Yeah, Yeah. happy Mother's Day, Holly. Yeah. Sitting in a park in Paris, France, reading the news, and it sure looks bad. They won't give peace a chance. It was just a dream some of us had Still a lot of lions to see But I wouldn't want to stay here It's too old and cold And settled in its ways here All the California California Coming home I'm gonna see the folks I dig I'll even kiss the sunset peak California coming home Who did the goat dance very well He gave me back my smile But he kept my camera to sell Oh, the rogue, the red, red rogue He cooked good omelets and stews And I might have stayed on with him there But my heart cried out for you California Oh, California Coming home Oh, make me feel good Rock and roll band I'm your biggest fan, California, we're coming home. Oh, it gets so lonely when you're walking in the streets are full of strangers. Oh, news Lots of pretty people there Reading Rolling Stone Reading Vogue I said how long can you hang around? I said a week, maybe two Just until my skin turns brown And I'm going home To California California I'm coming home Oh, will you take
take me as I am Strung out on another man California, I'm coming home Oh, it gets so lonely When you're walking And the streets are full of strangers All the news at home You read more about the war And the bloody change 